0: So when we picture a shepherd and sheep, what tends to come to mind? What do, we, what do we visually see or think about in those moments? What do you picture when I say shepherd and sheep? Hillside. Yeah, a hillside? What color is a hillside? Green. Yeah, pretty green. Yeah. What else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. puffy, cloud-like sheep. Yeah. Ben. What was that? Helpless sheep, yeah. Sheep are kind of helpless. They definitely thrive with some leadership and some shepherding. What else? What was that? A border collie, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so shepherds tend to have assistance and um, dogs or uh, under-shepherds helping to lead the flocks. Anything else? Yeah, Ben what was that? Someone relayed, I can't hear. Sorry, these ACs are so loud. Not stubborn. Not stubborn? Yeah, sheep aren't. There's a difference between sheep and goats. Goats tend to be a little more and donkeys are even worse. But yeah, sheep tend to not be super stubborn. And they kind of go with the flow for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. All beautiful things. One more. Jackson, what's up? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that is always a safe answer, right? Uh, if the pastor asked about something and you answered Jesus. Um, no, yeah, we'll get there, don't worry. Um, yeah, but we have, and, and hear me, uh, and if you were here last August, I kind of talked about this song a little bit, but for so long, I think for many of us, the image we have in our minds is probably something like this, right? It's, it's sheep, beautiful green lush hillside, plenty of tall grass, plenty for the sheep to eat, if anything, shepherding is kind of like a lazy man's job, almost. Like, uh, so like I don't know what a sheep's natural predator in like Ireland would be, but um, the the shepherds kind of just stroll around with the sheep, just kind of make sure you don't lose any. That's the hope, and um, it's it's kind of a a slow pace of life and those kind of things. And so that, that tends to be, I think, where a lot of my mind used to go to, and. It's the question of, all right, is that, is that right? As we approach scripture, is that the picture we're meant to see? And does any, does the psalmist or anybody in the, the Old or New Testament have this picture in mind when they think of shepherds? Because shepherds are pretty central to the storyline, right? Abel, right, so like right from the get go, Abel is a shepherd. Abraham, we, we find out really his only trade that's really listed is that They are caretakers of flocks, um, and he has various under shepherds. Uh, Take someone like Jacob. Jacob has to work for 14 years and what's his job for 14 years. Shepherding. Yeah. Laban's flocks. Uh, So he does that for 14 years and then continues that. We find Joseph, the the job that he is doing when he's introduced is he's out in the pastures shepherding. Uh, We would see God identified as this as Jacob is dying. He says that God has been a shepherd his whole life. And we will sign the psalmist, say that he led Israel like the shepherd in the desert, or even Ezekiel, say that God would return to shepherd his people. We have someone like Moses, who initially is not a shepherd. He's living in Pharaoh's household. That's not his job or career. But 40 years later, after his birth, uh, he flees. And then where do we find Moses? What's he doing? being a shepherd to, to his father-in-law's flock. We get the, the king of Israel that's selected by God, not the first one, but the second one. And what's he doing? David is shepherding, right? That is his role. We find prophets that are shepherds. We even see in Jesus, Jesus will stand there and say, I am the good. Man, you guys are so quiet. I'm the good shepherd. Like, it's central to the storyline. God's identified as a shepherd. Jesus will identify himself as a shepherd. Almost all the patriarchs are shepherds. The the most central king of the Old Testament is a shepherd. And so there's a big part of God's connection to being a shepherd, shepherding, flocks, that I think we we have to wrap our minds around. And, And I want us to make sure we do that faithfully as we open text, as we come across lines or read through Psalm 23. That we are framed, I think, the way that the psalmist hopefully wants us to be framed because it is image-rich, and there are beautiful metaphors, but I want to make sure that we have Middle Eastern pictures in our minds when we, when we encounter this because we might miss out on what the psalmist is actually trying to say. So we're going to work phrase by phrase. Um, this will be probably a little quieter than the first service, and that's probably might be a good thing. Um, because I want us to capture the intense imagery and the metaphors. Um, But I also, as we work phrase-to-phrase, I'm going to ask kind of questions, reflective questions as we go, a little bit different than we normally approach it. So, cool? The Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, once again, what does it mean to be a shepherd? Now, if you're in Israel, farmland uh, is on the western side of Israel between the mountains and and the Mediterranean, and there's not a lot of it. And so if you are raising crops, you have a small section of the country you can raise crops very well in. And so what, what has become historically for a very long time, the place of the shepherd is actually the wilderness, um, the Negev and places in the south, which really look like this. If you want to go where shepherds shepherd, sheep, goats, things like that in Israel, this is the terrain that pretty much all the shepherds, even if you're driving through, I mean, we drove through last summer, you, we didn't see really any livestock anywhere near the farms. And as soon as we got to where it looked like this, you would see herds and herds of, of various animals. And so in the middle of the desert, you'd find just a whole pack of sheep just wandering through the mountainy desert because that's where you go. You, you can't give up farmland uh, for that. And so um, these are the places where sheep and goats and livestock would often be raised. Now, if you're going to be a, a good shepherd, what are the things you probably need to know? Did say, say food? Yeah, you gotta know where, certainly food, especially in terrain like that. You gotta know where there's actually things to eat. What else? Water, I heard water. Um, yeah, you gotta know where the water is, because uh, it's few and far between. The, the beauty is that sheep only really need to drink one time a day, but you gotta know where it is, otherwise your sheep are gonna start suffering. What did you say? Yeah, you gotta know, yeah, how to, how to speak to the sheep and how to teach them to recognize your voice. What, accent? What is it? Yeah, predators. So lions, leopards, things like that. There are some natural predators. At least two thousand years ago, there's no lions there anymore. But uh, two thousand years ago, were more common uh, in that area. And so you got to know how to protect your sheep from the predators. Yeah. Um, anything else? Yeah, yeah. Terrain like that, it could be easy to get lost in. You know, things start looking very similar all over the place. And so you got to know where the roads are and the paths are. Yeah, Ben. Like teaching the sheep when to follow and not follow? Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. And probably a little bit of weather, too, uh, things like flash floods. Actually the number one killer in the Negev is actually not dehydration, it is flash flooding. And so um, it kills more people than dehydration does. So um, weirdly enough, in the desert, water kills more than not having water. Um, but it's, it's common there. So they have to know all these things. To be a good shepherd, these are the things you have to be aware of. You have to have certain knowledge and skill as uh, even Jeremiah 3 will say, like, good shepherds have this certain amount of knowledge and skill. And so we're gonna unpack some of, those, some of that knowledge and skill of the good shepherd as we go. And the beauty of this text too, um, so often I've, I try to push us to, to remind ourselves that there's such a communal aspect of scripture uh, that every you is almost always a y'all more than it is an individual you. But in this psalm, it is very individual of the psalmist. He's not saying the Lord is our shepherd. He's not speaking for all of Israel. He's very personalizing it saying the Lord is my shepherd. That that it's this individual devotion kind of moment for the psalmist. And then he says, I shall not want. And I mean, you'll hear this through the whole psalm series from me, but man, translators just do a, a job. Every other translation besides the ESV, the NASB, the CSB, the NIV, all, all these others say things like, I will not be in need, I have what I need, I lack nothing, all these sort of things. For whatever reason the ESV goes with, I shall not want, probably to match the King James that so many of us know. But the phrase there is like, the Lord is my shepherd and he, he meets my needs, not my wants, and if you're around my household with my kids, we have conversations around wants and needs all the times. It's like, I need that new toy. It's like, okay, let's talk about need versus wants. You want that new toy, and there's no need for that new toy. And so um, it's those kind of conversations. And if, I, if God meets all my wants, that can be a disastrous life for me. Like, there's all sorts of wants I have that are probably not healthy, not good, um, not the best for me. But a good shepherd knows what their sheep need. Knows, knows what is just necessary for the sheep, not necessarily all the wants. And so the psalmist opens by declaring that Yahweh is not only a shepherd, but that Yahweh is a, a good shepherd who knows how to provide for the sheep exactly what they need. And it's tempting to look elsewhere, but the question is, do we find, do we find our deepest security? Do we find our deepest needs really being meet, met? by God, or do we go to position or wealth or reputation or accomplishments and other things? lured into the wants of this world versus looking at the good shepherd who says, here is what you truly need. And what needs are we struggling with that we haven't brought before the Lord in a while or even at all? Because the psalmist is... Directing our attention there and then he says he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters Now that makes me lie down is interesting because you can't it, it's like uh, Kenneth Bailey talks about this He says it's about impossible to make a sheep lie down um, There's th- as much as they are not that stubborn. They are stubborn about that You can't just push them down. You can't just like say sit like a dog and they'll do it uh, They don't tend to kneel down very well, but they tend to settle themselves and um, I, I, he says that one way to translate this is that he settles me down in green pastures. He leads me to the places where I'm willing to finally lay down. And so let's talk about these pastures. Um, so the Judean wilderness, uh, we, don't, uh, we, don't, we can go there now, but uh, the picture. But um, as the picture showed before, it is not necessarily very green, right? Um, and in the text, this really leads me to, to these pastures. And about two times a year, the Judean wilderness is a little more green. Uh, two times, two months out of the year is when it's a rainy season, and it does get a little more green. Now the problem is, you don't shepherd sheep for only two months of the year and then not shepherd them for the other ten, but you shepherd all year round. And and so these shepherders know where there's grass, whether it's lush fields for two months for out of the year or it looks like this the rest of the year. That most of the time it's uh, rocks that collect a little bit of moisture because they get cool at night. Moisture gets into the soil, and these little tufts of grass survive and make it. They're not very green because they don't have enough water, but they, they exist there. And a good shepherd knows how to find these little bits of grass the other nine, ten months out of the year. And that's important. It's an important analogy because I think for so much of us, it's the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's these green pastures, and we think this abundant picture of alfalfa and and I think that's why we also stick to the I shall not want, but if the Lord's my shepherd and I don't have a need, and he knows how to shepherd me in the wilderness, he knows how to take me where, great, for two months out of the year, it's not that hard and there's green everywhere, but for the other 10 months out of the year, he knows how to help me find these tufts of grass to survive, to like the necessary things, not all the things I want. I bet those sheep want those green seasons all year round, but... They're willing to trust the shepherd to give them at least enough to eat, even in the other 10 months. And it can be content. You can settle, even when the season is bare. That's what Paul will eventually say. Paul, One of the most famous teachings of Paul is this thing that football players write onto their eye black. And it's around contentedness. Because Paul will say, look, I have been in plenty. I have had seasons of my life where I have had more than enough and God has provided more than enough. And I've been in want. I've had seasons of life where I've had very little and it has been a struggle. And then Paul will say, now I could do both of those. I could be content in all things. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not Jesus is going to help me win the football game. It's Jesus has taught me to be content, whether I have plenty or whether I have little. I can be content in that, I can settle, I can lay down in those pastures. And so even looking at a picture side-by-side, at some point, this is a picture of of life, that some of us, even in this room, are going through seasons where there is abundance, where things are working out right now, where jobs are working out, where finances are working out, where family is working out, relationships, things just feel abundant. There's a recent promotion, there's a recent, and, and it's like, wow, like, this blessing is here, and I feel it, and I know it. And some of you are on the other side, where it's like, I don't know where the next tuft of grass is going to show up. And, and everything still looks very brown in life right now. It feels scarce, it feels hard. It's hard to understand where hope is right now. And can we stand there and go, you know what? I still know my shepherd's going to meet my needs. Whether in abundance or not, I, I know my shepherd is going to be there. So where do you find yourself today? In the green or in the brown? Maybe somewhere between the two, which is not uncommon either. And what's the biggest challenge that you feel like you're facing right now? Where do you, where do you need strength? Where do you need courage to live out of this contentment? How can you trust God right now in that? And he says, he leads me besides still waters. Now the word still in Hebrews actually gets translated more often as rest. And so these waters of rest or resting waters, which I understand why we get still from that. And so if it rains in the desert, uh, these rains pour down into wadis, these sort of like little runoff river areas, and they, they kind of flush out. But if you have shadowy areas within the wadis, you develop puddles, these sort of um, little puddles in the midst of the desert. And a good shepherd knows where these kind of places are, uh, in addition to wells and stuff like that throughout the desert. But um, they would know where these locations of calm waters, because if you're a sheep, you're actually quite frightened of moving waters, of rivers. Um, and so these calm waters are really important. And so a good shepherd knows how to do this. And not only that, but they would often do this midday. They would get to the hottest part, right around 12, 1, 2 o'clock, and they would go find the water and they would rest. It would be. Not just still water, but resting water. It would be a time to just pause and to rest and to take it in. And once again, a good shepherd knows that we need rest as well. And so the question is, is do, we, do we have sort of those anchoring points of rest? In the middle of your day, in the middle of your week, do you have these moments of soul-satisfying, deep reps? Now, for, for a number of us, I understand. Like, I'm a young parent too rest can be difficult. So it's like, when do I get that? Um, and sometimes it's redefining what rest looks like. It's redefining what a Sabbath looks like in the midst of family and everything else. Or if you work six days out of the week, it's sometimes redefining some of those things or working through those. What does rest look like? But we're invited in to find rest in our, with our shepherd. And so what are the anchoring points that help us do that? What are the patterns of life that we have? Or maybe you don't believe you actually need them. That's a good question. But I think for most of us, we're like spinning our wheels and we're exhausted and anxious and when people ask how life is, it's, life is so busy, and I think what God invites us into is not necessarily that life, but a life that is marked by patterns of rest and refreshment. And if we're not experiencing that, the question is, what do we need to do to change that? What patterns, what liturgies of life do we need in our day and our week to start remembering that God invites us to rest in Him and to have a rhythm of that? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And so we said it before, it's, it's important for shepherds to know the right paths, to know where to walk, to to know the paths that are going to lead to food, to know the paths that are going to lead to water, all those sort of things. Because bad shepherds struggle uh, or cause problems when they don't. Jeremiah 50 is like a whole chapter of Israel's shepherds all leading the people on bad paths, and they use the metaphor there. Because the wilderness is complicated terrain. It's easy to get lost on. It's easy to, to, to not know where exactly to go. So following the right path I mean, the path of righteousness is also called the right path. And we see in the desert, if you go to the Negev, the mountainsides all have these little like striated kind of lines through them. And most of those are carved from shepherds. Uh, they're not naturally carved. They're, they're carved from flocks, crossing them all the times. And that these flocks have learned and carved out paths now, and the shepherds know where these paths are. They could recognize them now physically in the hillside of where there's going to be tufts of grass, where there's going to be water, what's going to lead to safety. And they lead their sheep on these paths. They know where to go. And they're called, they are literally called paths of righteousness in the literal sense. But certainly the metaphoric sense is there too. The Zedek, the righteousness in the text. And so often we think of righteousness as like doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Like that's that's what righteousness is about. the Old Testament idea is so much bigger. It's such a bigger picture, this sort of zedekah, this, this idea of righteousness because it's about actually right relationship with God, this sort of like a shalom peace between us and God, that that would be a picture of righteousness and with each other. It actually carries a, a horizontal as much as a vertical picture of everything being in right relationship. That's why Jesus will say things like, What is the the greatest command? It's like it's love God and and love your neighbor. Like it's having both of those in its right and good place. And so I think the invitation that the psalmist is speaking of is that God leads us on these paths, these, these paths that do lead to food and life and all these kind of things, the right paths. And he leads me in this place where me and the shepherd are, are, are in a good and right spot and me and the other sheep are in a good and right relationship with the rest of the flock. It's rightness to all in my world right now. And that's why he says it restores my soul in that. Now soul in the Hebrew, we, we use it a little differently. We tend to, in English, use it as like the immaterial part of us. Uh, Soul in Hebrew, the nefesh is actually like the full self like everything that makes up you, which is your body, your personality, the things you want and desire, all those things too, the nefesh is like the self. And so he says, um, he restores it. He brings it back. He returns it, the shuv. Um, and, and so I would argue the psalmist is simply saying, he brings me back, which is very much picked up in the New Testament. I mean, we hear the story of the the one that leaves the 99 and the shepherd goes out of his way to restore the, the, the self, to restore who he is. And so I think the, the metaphor still sustains here that the same idea that God is a God who brings lost sheep back to the sheep, that he's the one who, who returns what, what may be lost. He brings me, he brings a restoration to myself back to him and to his people. And he does so for his name's sake. Because a shepherd that loses sheep has a reputation on (laughs) the line. Like if you're a shepherd and you go out and you keep losing people's sheep, you're not going to stay in your job for very long. It's bad for your name. It's bad for your reputation. In honor-shame culture, your name is everything. And so it it matters to God. God about what his people do. That's why um, you have this Old Testament blessing that turned into a whole uh, Bethel song, but uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. This, this the priest speaking the, the blessing over the people, the Lord make his countenance upon, shine upon you. You had this blessing. At the end of the blessing, it says, for God's name to be carried by the people, that they would carry his name, that, that the reputation of God would be tied up in also how the people live and how God treats his people and how God cares for his people. And the same is true here. He does these things. He, he leads them on the right path and he, he doesn't let them stray. He brings them back. He restores them because God's reputation's on the line. Is he a good God? Is he a good shepherd? And that matters. So, when we've been off the path, how has God pursued you in your past as a good shepherd? What did it teach you about God in those moments when? It felt like things were going awry, or things were going straight, and yet God showed up. Maybe you find yourself on the path today. You're here, but man, life is not going how you want it to, how you expect it to. Your relationship with God is really affected right now. And how might you be allowing God, or even people close to you, bring you back? to lead you on a path of righteousness, on what is right and true. Maybe there's something that God is prodding at your heart today. But verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which some of you are singing Coolio in your mind right now, but um, maybe it's just me. I'm aged. Um, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's what's once again, the language uh it's Sure, uh, it can be the valley of death, uh, it's just the valley of deep darkness uh, It's really the, the language used there. And I think uh, it's probably more reflected in, in a place like this. Uh, this would be like a canyon in the midst of the Negev, kind of the, the deepest kind of cuts of the canyon. Now, what are the dangers that you might find in a place like that? Yeah, flood is one big one. Uh, so as rain hits those rocks. The rain does not get absorbed by the rocks and heads down into the canyon and causes flash floods. What else? We talked about it a little bit before. Predators, yeah. If you're a predator, you're going to go where there's no outage for any of the sheep, and so predators tend to, to to roam these kind of places quite a bit. And so this is this is the picture. This valley of the shadow of death. It's dark, deep darkness. Kenneth Bailey speaks of it in talking about the metaphor, the, the valley of death or deep darkness is a section of the trail that cannot be avoided. There is no bypass road and no magical escape, and the only way forward is through the valley. And the shepherds may have to cross through these places and lead the sheep, but it's only because they know what's necessary maybe on the other side. And I think the same is still true in life, that there's these seasons, there's these times where it is suffering, it is things to be afraid of. It is hard circumstances and struggles and it's deep darkness that might bring fear. It might bring depression. It might bring even anger. Yet there are valleys to be worked through. That if we're in them, it's because the shepherd has at some point decided that there's something good on the other side. And do we trust the shepherd in the midst of that? Because the psalmist says, "I, I will fear no evil. Now, hear me, uh, I want to be cautious. Fear is not always a bad thing. Like, fear awakens you to the circumstances that you're in. It's not always a bad thing. Like, if you're in something dangerous and fear increases your adrenaline, a good thing. Now, if fear leads you to be paralyzed or frozen, indecisive, to, to, to be in that sort of state, then fear can be a really bad thing. So, I think the psalmist is actually speaking, uh, yes, about fear, but in a way that's been dealt with by the God, by God, because I think he reflects on that. And I, will, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Like, I should have fear right now. I should fear flash floods and, and everything that could come from being in the valley of darkness, but God, you're with me. My shepherd is with me. It's a pivotal moment in the psalm for the psalmist to sit there and go, shepherd, is with me. No matter what we might be going through, no matter how hard this valley may be, you are not going through it alone. And we hear that time and time again in Scripture. We find in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 being like, look, we have a, 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 a Savior. We have a high priest. We have Jesus. Who does, it's not like he doesn't know what life's like. He's able to sympathize with us. He knows what betrayal by a close friend looks like. He knows what physical suffering looks like he knows what it's like to have very little he knows what it's like to be scorned by other people and ridiculed for what he is saying or believing he knows and we have that same that's that's our savior that's our jesus he is our shepherd and not only that but we have to remember in the midst of those valleys we fear no evil too and sheep don't fear as much evil when there's other sheep with them (laughs) Sheep only freak out when they're by themselves, but there's a bit of a peace that seems to come from sheep collectively. And we do that together. But he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, I wanted to dispel this in case you've ever heard this in a church setting. Um, there's no ancient history that we know of where uh, a shepherd like breaks the legs of sheep um, or like beats sheep for acting certain ways uh, to help bring them back and they have to carry them after they broke the legs. If you ever heard that? It's just not scripture. um, It's ways that authoritarian leaders justify authoritarian practices. So, but this rod and the staff, these are the pictures of the rod and staff. I want to talk about those. So, um, uh, the staff is the shepherd's crook and the rod is that sort of like little stick. And they have different purposes. Uh, The shepherd's crook uh, was more functioning of um, not to hit anything with uh, they if If a sheep ended up on a path that was a little further down the cliff, uh, they could be brought up a bit with a hook um, that was helpful for that, or if you 're navigating kind of steep, tight terrain, um, comes like almost like a rail to kind of keep them from going too far it, it, it wasn 't to injure, but it could help a uh, shepherd and then the rod um, was more a weapon um, it was almost like a billy club uh, with a Usually, really hard wood with a with a larger top. Uh, it was protection against predators. Uh, so when David talks about killing a lion and striking it down, and killing a bear and striking it down, that's likely that would have been the weapon he used, as opposed to the slingshot, which he might have used as well. And then. Um, the rod also has a second purpose. Uh, in Leviticus, they're instructed, the shepherds are instructed to count the sheep that go under a rod. You had to put the rod over the entranceway to a sheepfold and count the sheep as you go. It was like a turnstile in some ways for the sheep. And so for the shepherd to know that all the sheep are accounted for, it was part of the process. And so the psalmist is saying, God, as I walk through this valley, look, I know you're with I'm not going to fear any evil because I know you're with me. And I know that you will use your your shepherd staff to help guide me. You will use your, your rod to help fend off any predators. I trust you to do that. And so when we find ourselves in difficult times, do we turn to God for comfort? Or maybe you're experiencing right now that dark valley in your life. And if it's not you that's experiencing it, maybe it's someone that you know. In your community? Who might it be? And how can you reach out to them and let you know that God and you care for them? But if you are in the dark valley, how, how's it going? If, if it's really hard right now, are you denying that reality? Or are you, are you owning that life is like a valley right now? Are you stuck in it? Are you moving forward through it? How does the knowledge that God is actually with you in that, like present with you, does that change that reality for you? That God is actually walking with you through your difficulties? And then even the communal question, do do you tend to go through your difficulties alone? Like God invites the community, like, no, sheep don't walk alone, that's just like not what sheep do that there's others that are there to be present with you in addition to the shepherd in the valleys of life. And in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And if you're like me, you're like, what? This feels like a total pivot. Right now, we've been talking about sheep and sheep and shepherds all this time. And you don't prepare a table for a sheep or give a sheep a cup. Like this is not how sheep drink. It's not. We suddenly get this anthropomorphic kind of change. This this human kind of change. But I think we're still talking in the world of shepherds. And so I want I want us the minds to go a little bit here. Uh, this is a, kind of a modern Bedouin tent, uh, but um, the the Bedouin people and sort of the the. the shepherd people that live in the deserts in this area, um, I don't think much has changed in 2,000, even 3,000 years of setting up small tents. Even as Israel wandered the desert, I would imagine this were probably the tent systems that they would have um, come close to using. And the Bedouins people and uh, most of the people in this area have a pretty heavy hospitality code. It's just how they function. And if you're invited into someone's tent, um, you, uh, it's their responsibility to protect you at that point even to, the, even to the detriment of their own family like if someone were to attack the tent while you are a guest they would feel like it is their responsibility to take care of their guests even before their family in that moment that's just how the honor shame sort of world works so you'd enter the tent you'd be invited in it would be honorable for you and for them to experience sort of drinking and food and all this together that's what the host would do And they would set a table and provide food. And coming around the table is everything. It's an honoring experience. Uh, George Lampson says, in the East, a man's fame is spread by means of his table and lavish hospitality rather than by his possessions. So it's not about what everybody owns. It's about how they invite others in. Strangers and neighbors alike discuss tables where they have been guests. Such tales spread from one town to another and are handed down from generation to another. There is considerable gossip as to how guests and strangers are entertained. And so it's so central, this idea that, that God would prepare a table, almost this, this picture of, of um, hospitality in, in, amongst the shepherd community. And the psalmist is saying that. This God's like a, a good host, a good shepherd and a good host. But then the presence of my enemies is an interesting line. Because we, we don't know the context exactly. Uh, as the opening line says, it's probably written by David, but it could be simply in, in honor of David. So we don't know what the enemies are actually in the story. Uh, but I do find the New Testament really interesting on this because we see Jesus being invited into people's homes. We see Jesus invited into Zacchaeus' home. We see Jesus invited into tax collectors' and sinners' homes. And in the midst of those, there's always a collection of people on the outside watching this meal happen who are grumbling, who are frustrated, who almost look at both parties as now enemies to them muttering and i love the beauty of jesus teaching in the midst of that like in one of the times where people are muttering jesus tells them the story of the prodigal son of the son who ran away and brought back home and then the older son who is not happy that everybody's having this meal and this celebration and the invitation on the table is to come to the table as well even in the presence of the enemies come enemy enjoy the table as well And there he anoints my head with oil. Uh, The word anoint here in Hebrew is not the word that's ever used for kings in in the rest of the Old Testament. It's a different word for anointing kings uh, in the Old Testament. Um, And so anybody that sort of like jumps to kingship here, it's just not the language. Um, It's really the word like moisturize. He actually fattens my head with oil. Um, So he provides this, this balm for me in the presence of my enemies as well. He, he overflows my cup. So he's showing all this hospitality, invites me to the table. He, he gives me sort of balm for my skin. He, he, has a cu- he fills my cup so that it never stops. It, it even overflows. That's the picture we're meant to have. That's the kind of shepherd host that we have in God. The same God who, had, who created the world, invites his people into a tent and wants to share time with us. What comes to mind when we hear this? Do we believe it's true that God is this way? To share a meal, to actually desire not only for us to honor him, but for him to honor us back. To be reminded that God wants us, that God loves us and wants us to have joy. And is your walk with God marked with striving and guilt, or is it joy and celebration? That's what's on the table in the cup. And the moisturizer, all of it, it's God to say, I, I love you. I want these things for you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So as the psalm wraps up, I think there's parallels to the, the image, um, again, of, of the shepherd. Because at the end of the day, uh, this is when predators are the most dangerous. When the flock is at its weakest dusk is coming and predators are ready to come out. And so it's not common that, uh, particularly at the end of the day, they would station dog or the, even the head shepherd would go behind the flock at that point, um, or maybe one of the main under shepherds to bring the flock back into a, the sheepfold or wherever it's staying for the night. And shepherds would be concerned about the tail end of the flock, what was going to follow the end of the flock. And so here, the metaphor is, you know what's going to follow? You as a person. Goodness, mercy, this goodness, this tov, the same word that's used for when Genesis, when God looks at the world and says, it is tov, it is good. And so no matter what, as you walk through the valley of shadow of death, as you go through the green pastures, whatever it is, what is the final statement about all things, about who you are, about all things, I would argue, about even the um, um, history itself, tov, goodness, that is what's going to follow to the end and then mercy the chesed, the steadfast love god's it's so much more than just mercy it's god's commitment of love to his people to say i'm never going to leave you his steadfastness his goodness are all going to follow they're going to radar the same word that would be used for a predator chasing is what god is doing he's pursuing but with goodness and love all the days of our lives that's what's going to be on our heels, no matter what. And if life looks like a desert, if life feels like the valley of the shadow of death, that's not the final word. That's not the thing that will follow to the end. But goodness and mercy. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so this might be about David talking about the rest of his life or even eternal, but I think he's drawing us back to the house because the the temple's not built yet, um, but um, as he's just given us the image of, we're invited to the table. We're invited to to partake with the Lord. And I think we're invited back in. We're invited into the presence. He's saying, I will dwell. I will be in the presence of the Lord forever. And that's once again the invitation. Do we we live that way? Do we have a, a, a recalibration, recalibration of the awareness of God day in and day out? And what would impact, what impact do you think it would be to sort of practice what what some, the ancients called the presence of God, to to, to just know that God is present all the time, despite what is going on in our lives. So the psalm is a wealth of treasure, line by line, just a wealth of treasure for us. And I hope I've reframed a little bit of your imaginations around it. And as I said, it's interesting because of all the Old Testament metaphors, this seems to be one of the ones that carries the most weight into the New Testament as Jesus uses it all the time about himself, about his uh, followers, about um, even he's the gate to the sheepfold, all these analogies all over. And he will say one of the most significant things that a good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his sheep, pointing to what he will do at the end that he will go after the one that has left the 99 that he's willing to risk his life to lay down his life for the return of the sheep and that's what he does and he brings salvation he brings to his people as a good shepherd just what they need which is a return to the king which is a restoration of our souls so we can say there and say you know what i I don't know if this is gonna bring persecution. I don't know if this is gonna bring abundance and blessing. I don't know what it's going to bring, but I know I have all I need. And God, I can trust you because you're a good shepherd, because you're a good host. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me. And so I wanna, as we've reflected on each of these psalms and meditated, which I think is the main invitation from Psalm one, that we meditate just kind of ponder a little deeper. I want to invite Sarah up to kind of lead us in a kind of reflection time on the back end here.